And as we do that, I will invite you to open up your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We're going to go through the first 11 verses today. And the verses that we're going to be going through are so powerful, so meaningful in our time today. We know that our time today in our world is changing so dramatically. And before there was a time where we believed that it was difficult to grow up in a certain age and time. But I believe that today, in today's world, in today's time, it has become more vile and more foul our culture and our society and, and people around what's being accepted than ever before. But today we're going to go ahead and talk about certain now issues that matter today. Certain issues that matter today. They were relevant then and they are relevant today. I want to remind you as we begin this chapter, verses 1 through 11, that you are a child of God. And we sing that today, you are a child of God. And I want you to tell someone, you're a child of God right now. Turn around and say, you're a child of God. You see, because the Corinthian church, I want you to know this, the Corinthian church forgot that they were a child of God. And because they forgot that they were a child of God, they lost perspective and they entered into sin. And not only did they enter into sin because they lost perspective because of pride, but then, because of their pride, they started to have civil disputes amongst one another, and they started to sue one another between Christians. Man, that's the worst thing ever. That you see people suing each other, and they're both believers. Just imagine that. What a bad example. And you know that the reason why they allowed themselves to go that far as to sue a brother or a sister in the faith. You know why they allowed themselves to go that far? Because they lost perspective that they were children of God. Today I want you to remember something that, and when you remember this, when you know this, it's going to change everything about you. And if you like taking notes, I suggest that you write these two things, because I want you to remember, number one, who you are. And number two, I want you to remember who you belong to. Number one, who you are. And number two, who you belong to. Because if you remember that number one, I, no, I am a child of God, that's who I am. And, I know, and if I remember number two, who I belong to, that I belong to the Lord, that you're not your own, that you have been bought with a price, if you remember those things, it's going to change everything about you. And no longer will you permit sin or pride to, to permeate in your life that long enough to take you to the point where you sue a brother or sister. Or where you start to dispute something with a Christian brother or sister publicly. How many times have you started to argue with a Christian brother or sister and it was public? Oh man, we're two brothers and sisters and here at work you got the two Christians that can't get along. <laughs> Everyone else gets along but the two Christians don't get along with each other. That should not be. You see, the Corinthian Christians were so proud of what they thought was their wisdom, but their actions showed something completely different, that there was not one man wise among them. You know what we learned today in the first 11 chapters? That God's family matters. His family matters more than your feud. His family matters more than your feud. And you have to protect the family of God from putting a black eye to the faith into the name of Jesus. You know how you do that when you start to argue and you start to now 
uh, say, you know what, I don't want to get along with this Christian brother or this Christian sister, and you just can't get along. Look at how that looks and the damage that it does and it causes when we parade our disputes in public in front of the entire world. It doesn't look good. It causes a lot of damage. In fact, that is the very reason why a lot of people haven't come to the Lord possibly because they, if the Christians can't get along, then I don't want to be a Christian. <laughs> if they in the church can't get along, then I don't want to be a part of the church. They're so proudful and they're divided. And here we learn that we have to handle those types of matters because those matters will take place, but we have to handle those matters God's way. Not a secular way. If there's a problem happening between you and another brother, or you and another sister, or between two Christians, you handle it God's way. What does God's word say? You don't go to court. You don't sue someone. You don't try to go see an outside source that can give you an opinion or experience or their degree or whatever it is. Handle it. If it's between two Christians, handle it God's way. And I, and I hope that today, after today, you learn not to go to court with a Christian. You see, trust God to be your defender. Trust God to be your deliverer. You know what was taking place in the church? I want you to know this. God in His church, He loves addition. He loves addition to His church. God loves multiplication in His church. He loves multiplication and He loves addition when there's exponential growth in His church. He even loves subtraction. Can you believe that? God loves subtraction in His church when He needs to purge out sin. He loves addition. He loves multiplication. He loves subtraction. But God hates division. And we have to remember that. God hates division. And there's division taking place. Verse 1, it says this. Dare any of you. How dare you? How dare you? He's saying here. Having a matter against another, go to the law before the unrighteous. And now before the saints. Verse 2, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? Verse 4, If then you have had judgments concerning things pertaining to this life, do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to judge? Verse 5, I say this to your shame. I say this that you would feel ashamed. Here, it is, is it so that there is not a wise man among you, not even one, it says, who will be able to judge between his brother... But brother goes against the law, against brother in there before unbelievers. Now therefore it is already an utter failure, it says here now. It is an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? No, you yourselves do wrong and cheat and you do these things to your brethren. Do you not know? That the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Yes, it's going to be that type of Sunday today. <laughs> Let's pray. Lord... Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you because your word, Lord, it's so pure. Your word is black and it's white. Your word is true. We thank you because it's so bold to teach us. 
And I pray if today we have something against a brother, Lord, that you would remove that. Whether it's up to a brother or to a sister, to a parent in our marriage. Lord, maybe a co-worker that's a believer, a manager, whatever it would be. If we're in a, re- a part of a relationship between two believers that, that cannot get along, Lord, that you would just allow us to humble ourselves. In Jesus' name, the church together would say, Amen. Amen. It says here, verse 1, how dare you? He wants to come and be all in their face and said, How dare you, church? What's the matter with you? And he's going to teach us what you must not do if you have a civil dispute amongst a brother. He's going to teach you not what you should do. First, he's going to say, This is what you should not do. And he's going to let us learn. When you have a dispute, this is what you do not do. Verse 1, how dare you having a matter against another when you have a dispute or a disagreement or there's something taking place between two people, you go to the court before the unrighteous and not before the saints or not before God's holy people. How dare you? How dare you let the world dictate peace among Christians? Why is it that we're looking for the world to teach us about peace instead of going to God's holy people? You see, when the New Living Translation reads this, it says this, When one of you has a dispute against another believer, how dare you file a lawsuit and ask a secular court to decide the matter instead of taking it to other believers? In this time, in this culture, now the local judge would sit in the bema seat or it would be called the seat of judgment. And that seat was, he was the civil magistrate or the local judge. And that seat, that bema seat or that place to judge was located in the heart of the marketplace. Imagine that. And because of Greek culture, they found every good and legal battle so entertaining, anyone's lawsuit became public knowledge. So when you started, when you found out that somebody had a public lawsuit, they found this so entertaining that they started to let other people know so they would come and gather together and watch you battle it out between someone else in the heart of the marketplace. Now I say this because I want you to, I want to paint a picture. And the picture and illustration that I want you to see is that these are Christians that are in public display, disagreeing and fighting as a form now of entertainment now to the world. And he tells us, why are the Christians trying to find justice from those that are not even justified before God? You see, for us as Christians, I want you to memorize this and know this, as you have the Word of God sitting right in your hands and in your lap, that the Word of God is the authority, not a secular court. And I don't care what they tell you to do, the Word of God authority, there is nothing above it. Therefore, when the Word of God says to forgive, you are called as a Christian to forgive. And it says here now, verse 2, do you not know now? And he's going to tell us about three times in 11 verses, don't you know, don't you realize, did you forget that you're a child of God? Did you forget that you don't belong to yourself to so start fighting in public? And it's so sad when you see two Christians that are supposed to be the example Fighting in public so that now unbelievers are looking at them that were supposed to be the example, fail publicly in the eyes of others. And then what, it, what does it do now? It tarnishes their testimony. And your testimony is so important. Verse 2, it says, Don't you know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Why don't you look at the bigger picture? 
Don't you know that the, the, the saints, that the church are going to judge the world and that's the bigger picture? You are going to judge the unrighteous and you're going to the unrighteous so that they can teach you how to have peace between one another? You can't decide in the little things amongst yourself because you're stuck in so small things that are so insignificant. You know what the problem is sometimes? We get stuck in little things that are so insignificant that, that start a dispute that is so large now and we need the world to assist the church now on how to teach us to become peaceful. This should not be. Don't you realize that you are going to judge the world? Don't you realize that God has put you in the place of authority because you are children of God? And that He has given you His Word. And then verse 3, it says here, Don't you know that we shall judge angels? Well, it started getting out here pretty specific. Don't you know that you're going to judge the world? Verse 3, don't you know that you're going to judge angels? How much more the things that pertain to this life? If you're going to judge the world, end up judging the world. And if you're going to judge angels, how much more should you not have discernment through God's Word and wisdom? on how to deal with matters in-house. If God has placed you in a position to resolve and, 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 and judge the entire world and angels, how much more could you not have the discernment and the wisdom through the Word of God to now have these matters within the church be resolved and instill peace? And you would say, well, when are we going to ever judge angels? And when are we going to ever judge the world? I'm going to give you a really quick end times timeline that you should know about. The end times timeline starts today because we are living in the last days. I want you to know that. But number one, what are we waiting for? We're waiting for the rapture of the church. The rapture of the church can happen any moment. It can happen even before I finish this message. The church can be wiped out empty because we've trusted in Jesus Christ as our Lord and our Savior. After, after the church is raptured or taken up now to heaven, and I hope that all of us here are ready for that rapture, that if Jesus were to come today, you would not be left behind. But after the rapture, there are seven years. The first three and a half years are years of peace. That one man politically will be raised up to offer global peace to the entire world. And after those three and a half years, they're called the tribulation years, then after those three and a half years, three and a half more years begin, and those years are called the great tribulation. After the first three and a half years, that one world political leader, we know that he is the Antichrist, he's going to go now to the temple in Jerusalem, he's going to build it for them again, and he's going to declare himself to be the Messiah. And there's going to be a persecution like you've never seen before uh, across the entire world for Christians. The Bible tells us in Revelation that people are going to wish that they were dead because they cannot live under such heavy persecution. Those last three and a half years known as the Great Tribulation. That's why it's so important for me and for you to know that we are ready and we're not going to be left behind in the rapture. But after those seven years, you know what happens after those seven years? We come back with Jesus, our Lord and Savior, riding on that horse of victory. And it's called the thousand year rule and reign. The millennial age or the millennial reign. That's when all the millennials will reign with Jesus. No, I'm just kidding. That's when we all will reign with Jesus. For a thousand years, a millennial reign, rule and reign with Jesus. And after those a thousand years are up, it's going to be the final judgment. That's the final judgment where God is going to establish His kingdom here on earth. 
And we are going to sit on a throne with Christ. Imagine that after a thousand years, we're going to sit on a throne with Christ and judge the world. And also the angels that were now tied up for destruction, they're going to be loose. And we're going to judge those angels that had fallen from heaven because of pride and because of sin. Which Satan, we're going to judge those angels and we're going to judge the entire world for damnation and eternal now uh, separation in the lake of fire. Man, that's amazing, isn't it? That you have the hope that you know that you're going to rule and reign with Jesus. And he's telling them, don't you know that you're going to judge the world? And don't you know that you're going to judge angels as well? In fact, in Matthew 19, verse 28, it says, So Jesus said to them, His disciples, Assuredly, I say to you, that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of His glory here on earth, or establishes His kingdom, you who had followed Me will also sit on twelve thrones and judge the twelve tribes of Israel. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 4, now talks about how we judge angels. It says, For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, there were angels in heaven that were sinning, He cast them down, one third of angels... He casts them down. In Isaiah, it talks about that, that he cast them down with Lucifer, now to hell now. And it says here now, For if God did not spare those angels who sinned, but he cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. Those are the angels that he's talking about. You're going to judge those, those fallen angels. And understand, if you are ready for the rapture today, you have nothing to worry about when it comes to the tribulation. A lot of people read the tribulation and revelation and say, man, I am scared of the great tribulation. However, what does the Bible speak about? That nobody knows the time or the hour. Therefore, we have to be ready for the rapture and then we can come in the second coming of Jesus and rule and reign for a thousand years here with Him. And it says here now, Paul, as he's referring to that moment, don't you know that you're going to rule? In verse 4 now, If then you will have judgments concerning, concerning things pertaining to this life, if you're going to have the say or the authority concerning to the things of this life here, do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to judge? If you know that that is your destiny, your future destiny, why do you let the world decide matters between you and your brother? If, if you will be ultimately in charge of the world, why do you go and let the world have authority over the church? You see, the world's courts don't judge with godly fear. And that's why he doesn't want them to go there. And you're letting the non-respected, the least esteemed of the church dictate matters between you and your brother. That's embarrassing. That's an embarrassment to your testimony. And that is ridiculous. You see, Christians should be fully able to judge matters between themselves in light of their future destiny. So in light of my future destiny that I will be ruling and reigning with Christ, how dare I let the world dictate peace between me and my brother? You see, the right way to solve a problem, that the reason why he's telling this, because the right way to solve any problem that's taking place between you or anyone else, the right way to solve it is with the Word of God. And that's why He wants you to handle the matter God's way. Because He wants you to understand it is important that Christians settle disputes God's way and according to God's principles and using God as the authority. When you go out to the world, the world doesn't use godly principles. The world doesn't use godly now scripture and the foundation of how they discern peace between people. They don't use God's word. Saying, why is it that you're going out there and making a public spectacle out of yourselves when God's called you to peace and to unity? Verse 5, I say this to your shame. In fact, I want to call you out. I want you to know, I want you ought to be embarrassed here. 
that you're doing this. And I, and I pray today that if we have a public dispute with somebody, we keep fighting in front of unbelievers as believers, that that would stop today. Because that is a bad representation of Jesus. If you are called a Christian, that means that you ought to be like Christ. And you are not like Christ. You're bringing shame to His name. We're bringing shame to the name of Christ as we are fighting publicly in the presence of believers. Verse 5 says this, I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you? Not even one? He's saying, is it, can not even one person among the church be able to decide upon, upon these issues who will be able to judge between his brethren? But brother goes against the law and against another brother and that brother before unbelievers. You're suing one another. You're taking, instead of one believer here now, sues another believer right in front of the world or unbelieving. In verse 7 now, it teaches us something so important. Now therefore, it is already an utter failure. Man, sometimes we think, you know what, I'm going to win this case. I'm going to prove my point. I am going to be right. And that is pride. When you want to fight just because you want to be right, that's pride. And he's saying, instead of wanting to be pride all the time, he's proudful all the time, as it's saying in verse 7, when you take your brother to court, that's already a failure. Because you've already slandered the name of Christ. You've lost your testimony. And when you lost your testimony, you lost it all now. You lost every opportunity to share the gospel of Jesus because you're fighting in public. You're fighting against Christians is always a loss. You think to yourself, you know what, I won that case. You know, so I ended up winning. No, it's already a failure. Just the fact that you took a Christian brother to court, it's already a failure. In fact, what does he tell us now in verse 7 as we continue reading this? It's already a failure for you that you go, again, you go to the law against one another. You take someone to court between two Christians, it's already looking bad. You've already lost because you lost your testimony. In the eyes of God, you lost already. Getting to that point, you've already lost in the eyes of the Lord. Why do you not rather, instead, instead of doing that, why do you not rather accept wrong? Well, this is what we don't like right now. Oh man, you know what? They want to sue me. Just accept wrong. Don't let them take you to court. Just humble yourself. Accept the wrong. Why do you not rather let yourself be cheated? You know what the problem with ourselves is? Is that we don't want to be cheated. And we don't want to take the humble road. He's saying instead, just humble yourself. Instead of just deny your pride. Instead, just deny your ego. Let yourself be cheated. Be more interested in the kingdom of God than in yourself. Because when you go to court with, between believer and believer, guess what happens? You're saying, I am more important and my pride and my rights and my selfishness is more important than the kingdom of God. And here you're saying, no, it's not. The cross is the final answer to every single problem. You know why? Because at the cross, you deny yourself and you humble yourself. And what's worse? What's worse, to lose against a brother in an argument or to lose your testimony in public? What is worse? What is worse? Because your testimony, your witness, is all, speaks all about your example. In the New Living Translation, the verse 7, it says, even to, even to have such lawsuits with one another is a defeat for you. Why not just accept injustice and leave it at that? Why not let yourselves be cheated? You see, we're so addicted today to our rights. Everybody wants to say, I know my rights. I don't want to get cheated. I don't want to get def uh, you know, defamed in character. I don't want people to say about me. I don't want them to rip me off. He said, you know what? Just let yourself be ripped off. <laughs> you know what? Let yourself be cheated. 
accept the injustice instead of going and making a public spectacle out of yourselves in public because you're so addicted to your rights. You're fiercely clinging to your rights or to yourself that you've shown an utter failure already by going to court with a brother. You've already lost, he's saying. And it would be rather better that you accept the wrong, even if it wasn't your fault. It's better that you accept the wrong and you let yourself be cheated than to defend your rights at the expense of God's glory and the higher good of His kingdom. Just think about that. Because sometimes we want to win in the people's court here on earth, but we've already lost before the eyes of our judge in heaven. And we have to remember that. You know, when, and when you lose, don't think that you lost anything. In fact, you, you are never a loser when you allow yourself and you accept injustice for the kingdom of God and for the glory of God. It's, if it's between you and your brother, you are never a loser because it's for the glory of God. It's for the sake of the kingdom. In fact, in Romans chapter 12, verse 17, you know what Paul tells the church of Rome? He tells them something very specifically when it comes to this. We so often get mad at people and all of a sudden we want to get even. <coughs> don't, don't try to get even. Let God defend you. Let God deliver you. Why do you need the world to justify you when God has already given you that justice because of His Son, Jesus Christ, on the cross? And it says in Romans 12, 17, Repay no one evil for evil. Have good regard in the things uh, here in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves. Don't try to get revenge. But rather give place to the wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, and I will repay, says the Lord. See, it's not your job to get even. It's not your job to deliver, uh, to deliver yourself, to defend yourself. And most of the time, when you try to defend yourself, then God will not defend you. God wants to be your defender. If you read throughout Psalms, you see that David had a personal relationship with God. And every time he would exalt him as he was his defender. And God wants to defend you. And if you love your Christian brother or sister, if you love them, guess what that means? I've heard it recently, to love means to be vulnerable. Vulnerable to what? Vulnerable to hurt. But also be open not only to hurt, but also open to forgive. Because you know what love does? It doesn't allow you to get to that place where you want to take your brother or sister there. Because love covers a multitude of sins. I love this person. I love God. I'm a child of God and I belong to God. Therefore, I will not go there because love covers a multitude of sins. This person has wronged me. This person has cheated me. This person has, has now displayed an injustice towards me. Because, but the love of God, that I love God and I love this person, it covers a multitude of sins that they've done against me. This is so important. Matthew chapter 6, verse 14 and 15 says, But if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you don't forgive men of their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you of your trespasses. How many times do you say, Lord, forgive me? But then when it comes to you forgiving someone else, you don't want to forgive them. Because you feel in your mind that you're entitled to forgiveness. However, that person has wronged you way too many times. They're not entitled to forgiveness the way you receive forgiveness. It's always sad when you see Christians, well, you know, that person receive, deserves justice. That person receives that they, they pay the penalty of what they did to me. And I feel like they wronged me and, they, and somebody better teach them that they feel the pain that I felt. You know what's crazy? That we, when we hold on to pain, we also want the other person to feel that same pain. And we actually want to get even. We want to put them through pain. 
And we'll do anything we want to because of our pride to put them through pain, to put them through struggle because we have not forgiven them. But that's not what the Lord did to you. The Lord forgave you and He forgot your sin. And therefore we are called to love and to forgive. In Matthew 18 verse 34 it says, And his master was angry, talking about a man now, a servant that did not want to forgive those who owed him. And his master was angry and delivered him to the tortures until he should pay all that was due to him. So my, fa- so my heavenly father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother of his trespasses. Are you holding something against a brother or sister today? Because if you hold something against your brother or sister today, how do you expect God to forgive you? He can't forgive you because you haven't repented of the sin of unforgiveness. God cannot forgive you if you have not repented from the sin of unforgiveness towards somebody else. And this is so important that we talk about it because as this happens here, as he's talking to the church in Corinth, he's talking, number one, when that happens, when you get ripped off or cheated or any of that, you know what it does? You, you have to deny yourself in that situation. So let God purge you of self. Number one, let God purge you of self in that situation. Lord, cleanse me in this situation. If I'm, I, I, if I'm at odds with a brother or sister, Lord, just purge me of self because I want the higher good for your kingdom. Number one, let God purge you. Number two, let Him provide for you in that moment. You don't have to go to court. You don't have to go to man to, for that man to provide for you or to find something, a, a quick answer to your problem, immediate. No, let God purge you. Let God provide for you. And guess what happens if He purges you and then He provides for you? Let God also promote you. Let Him use you. Because every time that you allow this to take place, you are being used by God. You are being used by God. Verse 8, look what it says now. No, you yourselves do wrong and cheat. No, you rather do wrong to each other. You rather be cheating each other. You rather be as a, in between fellow believers, which is a sin, to be fighting and disputing and there be division amongst your brothers. And this is a complete turnoff to the world. This is a complete turnoff to the, your family that's not a believer or to your co-workers that don't know Jesus Christ and they see you disputing this way. This is a complete turnoff to them to come to know Jesus. Oh man, they're, they're being dishonest among each other. They're, they're fighting against one another. Guess what happens? That doesn't show any love. That doesn't show the love of God. It's the love of God that draws people to repentance. And that does not show any type of love. The greatest bottom line birthmark to the Christian, the greatest bottom line birthmark to the Christian, I want you to know this today, is love. <coughs> is love. Man, I want you to have, and, 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 and us as a church to have, that special birthmark when we were born again as believers now, and that is love. What is in 1 John 3.16, what do we learn now? By this you know love, that because He laid His life down for you, that you also ought to lay our life down for the brethren. That's what love means. It means I'm going to accept now, I'm going to humble myself, I'm going to deny myself, so that the name of God is not blasphemed, so the name of God now is not talked about in a negative way. 1 John chapter 4, verse 20 says, If someone says, I love God, Oh, I love God, I'm singing songs, I'm going to church, but I hate, he hates his brother. He's a liar. How can you say you love God, but you hate your brother or your sister? It says he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother, who he can see, physically see, touch and hear, how can he say he loves God who he has not seen? Now you're lying, you're inconsistent. And this commandment we know from him, that he who loves God must love also his brother also. 
You see, if you, if you say that you love God today, that means that you ought to love your brother. You cannot say, I'm right with God, but I'm not right with that person because I haven't forgiven him. That does not exist. You cannot say, I'm right, I love with the Lord, I'm right with the Lord, I love Him so much. We have a great relationship, but me and my brother have broken fellowship, or me and my sister, because of sin. It doesn't happen that way. How can you say you love God who you haven't seen, but you can't love your brother who's right there, right in front of you? How can you say you love God who you haven't seen, but you can't love your brother that's right there in front of you? You see, and if a Christian can cheat one another, if we can take each other to court and defraud his brother, and you can do it without, with a good conscience, without feeling bad about it, it may be fairly said, are you a Christian at all? Are you a Christian at all? Because you ought to not allow yourself to do this or to get to that point where, where you are doing that to one another. You know what that does to you when you, you put yourself in that position? You set yourself up with bad company. You set yourself up with bad company, and he's going to get specific here with what type of company he's talking about. And when you get specific, every time you get specific in the Word of God, you also become really controversial to the time of what this, what this world tells us. Because right now in the next few verses, from verses 9 to 11, he's going to tell us, turn from your carnality and turn from a life to a life that you've been saved to live. So you, you haven't been called to live like the world. And because you try to be like the world, now you are getting to the point where you're suing each other now. It's, it's gone that bad now. It has gone that bad because you forgot who you are and you forgot who you belong to. If you remember every day, who am I? I'm a child of God. Who do I belong to? I belong to the Lord. He bought me with the price. I am not my own. He went to the cross. He forgave me of my sins. I am a child of God and I belong to Him. I'm not of my own. Then it's going to change everything about your life. Because you understand that you're living God-centered and not self-centered. Think about how many Christians say they're professing Christians living as self-centered people. That's not the way God called us to live. And if you're doing this and you're getting to the point where you're defrauding and cheating one another and doing all these things to one another publicly and suing one another, you've gotten to that point, you've already set yourself up in the worst company. And this is the truth here. And he says, I don't want you to be fooled thinking that this is okay and that you're okay accepting this and accepting other sins as well and feeling that you're going to go to heaven. Now it says here, verse 9, Do you not know? Now he reminds them of the truth. Don't you know today? Reminds them of the truth. Don't you know what? Don't you know that the unrighteous, or those that live and practice sin, and are living habitually in sin, do you not know that they will not, they will not inherit the kingdom of God? Who inherits something? Who are heirs of a certain wealth? First of all, for someone to inherit something, that means that a father or a mother has to die. We know that our father, Jesus Christ, he died on the cross, right? The son died on the cross, he was resurrected. But because he did that, we as his children, we are children now of God, and we can inherit the wealth of eternal life. We can inherit that. But if you're not living like a child of God, then you're not going to inherit the wealth of God and that eternal life and those promises. Now it says here, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. You will not inherit it. And then he's going to give us a list. But first, it says here, now it says here, do not be deceived. Before he gives you the list, he tells you, don't be deceived. You know why he says don't be deceived? Because the world wants to deceive us today. The world wants us to know and to think that if you do these things listed here, that you're, you're still going to go to heaven. And you hear a lot of people on the internet, online, and through just different uh, outlets in our world today that are saying, you know what, you can do that and still go to heaven. The Word of God is clear. It's so concise here. 
There's nothing to be confused about at all. There really is nothing to be confused about at all. And although the world might be going one direction, the Word of God stands as it did when it was first written and inspired by the Holy Spirit. Do not be deceived. Don't let people lie to you. You know when you start to be deceived? In fact, in the Garden of Eden, what was the number one thing that Satan tried to do? He went to Eve, and, he, and through the serpent, right? And he says, you know what? The God didn't really say that. He said this. And that's what Satan is doing now, even today. He's still doing it. He did it the first day in the Garden of Eden, and he's doing it today. Well, God's word didn't really mean this. He means this over here. That means that you can live your life however you want and still make it to heaven. Look what it says. Don't be deceived. Don't let people lie to you. Don't let people lie to you. Don't be ignorant. Know God's word. And it says, verse 9, Do not be deceived here, neither fornicators. Number one, fornicators. What is fornication here? What did Jesus describe? If you look at a woman, and you lust for her in your heart, you've already committed, number one, adultery. Fornication is any sexual act outside of marriage. Sexual act outside of marriage. That means that if I am sexually active outside of marriage, that's fornication. And if I'm living in that lifestyle where I'm not married and participating sexually in a sexually active or, or any other sexual sin, right? Like, for example, other sins that are outside of that, then I'm not going to go to heaven. That's what the Bible says. Nor idolaters. What is, that? what is an idol? Anything that you put before the Lord. An idol can be a job, it can be maybe a person, an idol can be money, whatever it is. If you're idolizing, if you're falling in love with something more than you're falling in love with God, that's become your idol. Because you worship it now. Nor fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers. Nor adulterers. What's in the adultery? We described it already. When you are unfaithful to your wife. Unfaithful to your husband. And a lot of people say, well I haven't committed adultery, I, I didn't do anything. I just looked, but, but in your heart, if you looked, and in your heart you had a thought, in your mind you pictured and visualized something, is that not just as bad as adultery? Oh, absolutely. And that's what we have to ask the Lord, Lord deliver us from these sins, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites. Where homosexuality is something that's been accepted now in our time more than ever. And, and we start to think that, you know what, God created me with a different identity. No, He did not. God created you in His own image. That means He created you to be holy. He created you to be pure. He created you to have a mind that can discern from right and from wrong. And He said, no, homosexuals, nor sodomites. No, people that practice homosexuality, nor sodomy, which is male prostitution. It's gone so bad. It was taking place in the church. It was taking place in Corinth. It's taking place in our time today. You know why this is so important? All these sexual sins that he describes in verse 9. You want to know why they're so important that, that Paul has to describe them? Because they go against everything that God stands for. And that's the family and that's marriage. And we start to accept homosexuality and fornication and adultery. It goes against the family and it goes against the marriage which is the most holy institution that God created for us to know a relationship that He desires between us and Himself. We've distorted it by accepting these things. It's important for us to know not only that, that, why, that God doesn't approve of these things, but why doesn't He approve of these things? Because He already has a standard of marriage. He already has a standard of family. You know what the Lord loves more than anything? He loves the family. The Lord has a special place in His heart for family and for marriage. And now it says here now verse 10, Nor thieves, those that steal, nor covetous people, 
Those that are greedy, those that always want more, here it says, those that are greedy people, nor drunkards. Oh, I'm a Christian, but I can, you know, pop the bottle on the weekends, you know, get turned up and lit a little bit, and it's going to be all good, because on Sunday, I'm going to raise my hands, and I'm going to be good with the Lord. No, that's not the lifestyle that God has called you to live. And if you're living that lifestyle, I want you to know that that's not what God wants you to do. A lot of people say, well, you know what? It, it, I, I'm doing it in, in a confined way where it doesn't make anyone stumble. Let me tell you, if you want to be used by God, you're not going to do it at all. Because you don't want that, to, you don't want to accept that. That was part of your old life. Why are you accepting such a little place, a part of your old life, back into your new life with the Lord? And it says, nor drunkards, nor here revilers, nor abusive people, nor extortioners, nor people that are cheating one another, will inherit the kingdom of God. You see, this is a very important list. Because in the church, it's so easy to, to idolize something. It's so easy to cheat something. It's so easy to live a life that is greedy. And it's saying here, those people that are dominated and characterized by these sins, we need to forsake them and repent them, and repent from them, so that we can actually be forgiven by the Lord and inherit eternal life. Now it says in verse 11, as we finish today, and such were some of you. That way we don't get all self-righteous. Oh yeah, I'm not, any, I'm not any of those things. I've never been an adulterer. I've never cheated on my wife. Or I've never, you know, uh, practiced in fornication or living in, a, in, in drunk. No, the Bible says in verse 11, and such were some of you. <laughs> we came out of that lifestyle. But because we came out of the lifestyle, we should not live in that lifestyle any longer. Don't you know it says, such were some of you. But this is so hopeful, this is so refreshing. This comes with the promise in verse 11. And he tells us the gospel in one verse. Such were some of you. You guys were in fornication and adultery and drunkards. That's what we were. That's who we were. It says we weren't right. We weren't always perfect. Absolutely. We're far from perfect. And still today we are. But it's because of the blood of Jesus Christ that we can stand confidently and boldly before the Father. It says here, And such were some of you, but you were number one. He says three things. God's mighty word is summarized in three ways in your life. And you were washed. What does washed mean? That means that God washed you and cleansed you spiritually. From the inside out of all the filth and sin of your past life, He's washed you. But you were now sanctified. Not only did He wash you, but He also sanctified you. Wash you means, oh Lord, you washed me, thank you, I accepted you, forgave me my sins. But that after that, after He washed you, He set you apart clean. Have you ever washed something, and then you put it right back into the dirty dishes? <laughs> you don't do that. You wash it, you dry it up, let me put it all over here. We don't want it to be with the dirty dishes. That's exactly what Jesus did. He washed you, and then He put you apart for His use. He washed you and He set you apart for God's holy use and God's purpose. And then what it says here in verse 11, it says here, But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. What did He say? Lord, thank You because You washed us. And then You set us apart. And when You set us apart, then You made us right with God because of the work of the cross and not because of anything that we did. You declared us right with Jesus because of what the cross did, not because of anything that we did. As we did one thing though, only thing we did is we put our faith and our trust in Jesus in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. See, you know why this is important? It's important because we have to say, Lord Jesus, I want, I'm putting my faith and my trust and I depend on You as my Lord and my Savior to cleanse me to wash me, to justify me, to declare me innocent because I'm guilty 
without you. I am guilty, but in Jesus now, before the Father, I am innocent now, as I call on Jesus and by the power of the Spirit. Why the power of the Spirit? Because it's the Holy Spirit that transforms your life. And sometimes you think, well, in and of myself, I've failed many times. I try to transform my life, and it just doesn't work. It, it does not. It's never going to work that way. You need the Spirit of God to transform and change your life completely. That's why we need a spirit transformation by the Spirit of God. Because that's what it does. It washes us. It cleanses us. It makes us righteous. We are clean from our sin. We are set apart from the world for God's special use. And through the working of His Word as we're reading it. And then we're declared innocent by the court of God now. And God here is teaching us through His Word, through Paul the Apostle, that He can take the kind of people described in 1 Corinthians 9 and 10 and make them people of 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 11. How great is the work of our God. That He did that for us and through us and in us. You see, it's impossible to live like the devil's children and expect to go to heaven with God's children, Alan Redpath said. I love it. And I read it this week and it said, it's, it just pierced my heart. Because it's impossible to live like the world and expect to call yourself a Christian and that you're going to inherit the kingdom of God. But you know what the promise here is so beautiful? That God loves you enough to forgive you, to wash you, and to make you right with God. In fact, in 1 John verse 9, verse, chapter 1, verse 9, it says, But if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. If you confess your sins, He's faithful and just. God's not unfair. He just wants you to confess your sins. And as you confess your sins, you say, Lord, I need you. I'm found dirty. This world has had their change on me, Lord. And, and I want some freedom from this sin, Lord. Give me freedom now through the power of the cross in your spirit. Then He is faithful and He is just to forgive you of your sins. And guess what? As a child of God, you are there to inherit the wealth of eternal life. And you can know for certain that if I die today, I'm going to go to heaven because I put my trust on the work of the cross. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Heavenly Father, we thank You. We thank You because You have washed us. We thank You because You have cleansed us. And we thank You, Lord, because You have sanctified us and we are now right with You, Lord. But maybe some of us are not right with You, Lord, and we need to make things right today. Maybe we want to accept You, Lord, as Lord and Savior. Because we want to go to heaven. Your word is true, Lord. And everything else is false. It's written by the Holy Spirit, Lord. That inspired man. And I pray for anybody that's not walking with the Lord or not walking right with God today, Lord, that you would just pierce their heart right now, Jesus.